So as those of you who were here last night are aware, this uh, retreat, uh, the talks in this retreat are interlocking in some way, but uh, everyone. also uh, each one can stand by itself while being enriched in the context like of the other two. My voice of so last reach, uh, evening I talked about fabricating reality. The title of today's talk is opening to the depth of being. Quite a tall order, by the way. Tomorrow's talk is engaging with the world. So because of this connection between the topics, it'll be useful to recap briefly yesterday's talk. I based it on the teaching of the Buddha called dependent origination or dependent arising. And the Buddha said, based on ignorance, whenever there is a contact between our consciousness and an object of attention, a sense object, that contact leads to an evaluation, what he calls the Vedana, sometimes translated as feeling, so that we evaluate it as if pleasant, unpleasant, or in between. If it's pleasant, we reach out for it, we cling to it. If it's unpleasant, we have an aversion and we push it away. And if it's in between, we tend to not care at all. Just skip that and try something else. The, the next step and the important step, the step that's really driving this clinging and pushing away is the giving rise to the I. It's in order to give rise to the I, to the me, that we cling to things. Of course, the I is a very questionable entity and which is bound to fail us and therefore create a lot of suffering for ourselves. With this overwhelming need to fabricate the I around any circumstances in our life and feel secure, feel secure about it, reality becomes a casualty. We can't afford to live by the reality of things. Now, I went on to examine a similar sequence that um, has to do with our collective identity. And we resort to that particularly when our individual fabrication of I fails. Fails to deliver, which necessarily will. And so we, we look for an alternative in fabricating a collective alternative. And in this and in that, we then become 
cons of the media, of politicians, of whoever wants to use us for their own goals. So, we find an item in the media, makes contact with our consciousness, and from that comes a, a wanting this, or rejecting that, and the fabrication of us around it. We, the rulers, this moment the rulers of Iraq, nothing much to be proud about, but anyway, we, the victims, and of course, that can also not last for very long and leads to suffering again. This collective identity sequence is surely being manipulated by others, but uh, it's, it only works because we buy into it. And the net result of this is that we find ourselves imprisoned. Imprisoned in the fabricated identity, imprisoned in the warp of views and opinions that we have to hold on tightly to. And the question is, is there a way out? And of course there is, and that's the topic of today's talk. Opening to the depth of being. Now, how do we find this depth of being? This under-the-skin place, if you wish. This sp space that's not confined by the me or the we that we fabricate versus you. Besides encouraging us to embark in practice, the Buddha doesn't offer any simplistic formula or prescription for that. And yet it's very clear in telling us that such a space is eminently accessible to us. There's a lovely scripture, the first one in the Majjhima Nikaya, called The Root of All Things. In it, the Buddha contrasts the behavior of those who are in bondage with the behavior of those who are free. And he lists a range, a whole range of different experiences for the people who are in bondage and for the people who are free. I will not go down the list, I'll just take one example. And this is the first example he offers, 
which is the experience of Earth. How do we experience Earth? And here's what we says. he says. First, for those in bondage, which he describes as ordinary persons. Here's a fragment from the scripture. Here, bhikkhus, bhikkhus means uh, monks. Here, bhikkhus, an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and and undisciplined in the Dharma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their Dharma, perceives earth as earth. Having perceived earth as earth, he conceives himself as earth. He conceives himself in earth. He conceives himself apart from earth. He conceives earth to be mine. He delights in earth. Why is that? Because he has not fully understood, I say. That is the Buddha says. Then he goes on to those who are practicing. Because a bhikkhu who is in higher training, whose mind has not yet reached the goal, and who is still aspiring to the supreme security from bondage, directly knows earth as earth. Having directly known earth as earth, he should not conceive himself as earth. He should not conceive himself in earth. He should not conceive himself apart from earth. He should not conceive earth to be mine. He should not delight in earth. Why is that? So that he might fully understand it, I say. Um, just as a footnote here, when the Buddha talks about should, it's not like in the, say, Western culture commandments where you what that you should do. It's, it's an invitation. It's the appropriate thing, the skillful thing to avoid doing that. And finally, for the enlightened being, for those who are free, he says, because a bhikkhu who is an arahant, arahant means enlightened being, whose taints are destroyed, who has lived his ho the whole li the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and is completely liberated through final knowledge, directly knows earth as earth, just the, the previous one, having directly known earth as earth. He does not conceive himself as earth. And that he shouldn't, but he doesn't conceive himself as earth. He does not conceive himself in earth. He does not conceive himself apart from earth. 
He does not conceive earth to be mine. He does not delight in earth. Why is that? Because he has fully understood, I say. So, very clear invitation to not fabricate ourselves around earth or around anything. Fine, but how do we get there? How do we open ourselves up to the direct experience of earth in the example of being, of fully being in all the aspects of being, free from the compulsions of eye-making? What I like to do is just go over a variety of possible situations and see how this plays out. Take this situation right here, right now. I'm talking. You're listening. And say, which is probable but not certain, that you do focus your attention on the talk. In a corner of the mind, there might be a wish to take something home. To take some notes down and, and uh, save it. As we do in, in uh, classroom situations, I've been a teacher, university teacher for much longer than I've been a meditation teacher, and I know that very well. And th so this taking home goes all the way in the universities and similar institutions to um, a piece of paper with certificate, a degree that we frame and put on our wall. This is what we take home from many academic situations. That would not serve the teachings here at all. Not even to, to, from what I say, rearrange the furniture of the mind so that now it looks better. It's, uh, it's more buddhistically correct. <laughs> the, the true invitation is to drop all that, all trying to get something out of it. And I'm sure you understand that. I'm not assuming you're disagreeing with this. So the, the, the true attitude towards the talk, as I've, uh, I've been at the receiving end of many talks as well, and what I try to do, is to just be present to see if anything emerges. If anything emerges, from this 2,500 years old tradition that has been sort of sharing its wisdom in unexpected ways with all kinds of cultures and succeeded it. 
that comes from a deep source which we don't need to examine in any way. We don't need to know the history of Buddhism. Which, if anything, is likely to disarrange this furniture of our mind, thank God, and and manage to, in doing that, clear, create a clear space of freedom in our minds. And what I'm trying to say is hard to put in words, because it's largely beyond words. And this is not to give words a, a bad rap, we were talking about that earlier in the group today. You know, there, there's also tremendous possibilities for, for things, for wisdom to emerge through words, through listening, of course, and also through reading and by writing as well. Just a couple of days ago, Raquel was reading a book and she shared a segment that I found quite uh, valuable. Let me share it with you. It's a book by a, a woman called Kim Chernin. And she says, Reading changed me in ways I would not have been able to specify. But that is the way with reading. It gets in under the skin. And there, in darkness, it begins to prepare the work of fully conscious understanding. And this is very much under the skin, in darkness, the way we need to hear the sutras, hear the scriptures, hear the words of the Buddha or of Jesus. not the way fundamentalists tried to do by fixing meanings through the definition of words. Now for us right here who practice of course the paramount tool for accessing that space of freedom is the practice itself. Uh, for in the, its initial stages particularly, and this is quite obvious I'm sure for those of us who are, those of you actually who are beginners at this point, it becomes a, a proving ground as a test run for living in the moment unencumbered by I-making or we-making. But of course what we first discover is how difficult that is. Amazingly difficult. Somebody was sharing in the group today how difficult it is to be in the moment. Absolutely not to Minimize that. And in fact, to understand that that is 
the terrain in which we'll need to learn. Because it's difficult, it's telling us something about how the mind usually functions. And therefore, it encourages to find alternatives. Alternatives in which we can open up to just be with the breath, just be with sounds, with sensations, with emotions, without judgment, without identification, without trying to change. Without trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. Just letting the molehill stay a molehill. <laughs> Sometimes we find it unbearable to wait for the next thing. Of course, mind is shifts to the future, and the future's not coming, how come? No. When is that guy in the front going to stop talking? Or, or even worse, when is the, you know, we're sitting, not even distracted by a guy talking, and when is the bell going to ring? But not to be hard on us for, for that wish, on the contrary, allowing ourselves to really be there with a contraction of mind that accompanies this wanting things from be, to be different from what they are. And to discover, because there can be a shift in the grip of that impatience, sadly we discover, we shift. We release, we open up, and we discover, wow, you know, I didn't have to be torturing myself with impatience. And next time we're in a situation that requires patience, we remember that place that we can access. And we shift again. Another way of accessing this space of freedom is to allow compassion to come to our heart. A compassion that transcends our own plan and the bounds of our own identity. Compassion in social situations. Compassion watching the images on TV, as I find myself doing when I watch the uh, news. The, I watch the BBC, whatever, which is uh, full of images of suffering among Palestinians and among Israelis, among the Iraqi resistance and among the US soldiers in Iraq, in the faces of the children of Darfur in Africa nowadays, wherever it is, can we allow that pain in our heart 
not jumping to judge this or that party that is, in our view, creating that suffering. This, this, the time for that is a time for trying to find out why the suffering occurs and changing it. But there's also the time for compassion, just opening our hearts to the suffering of others. And discover the great freedom of being vulnerable to suffering. Because as I'm sure you know, and I know that very well from my own experience, often enough, the judgments, the opinions, are are the way that we use not to make ourselves vulnerable to, to the pain. So, we let ourselves feel the pain. Then we don't have to fabricate opinions and judgments to avoid it. But of course, there's a, a, a wide range of situations where we can practice opening to the depth of being. I mentioned uh, right here. I mentioned reading, writing, practice, compassion. Another way that's uh, very appropriate for many is contact with nature. Nature seems to inspire one to just be with what is. As the Buddha was saying in the scripture, the root of all things. Not trying to appropriate it, not trying to make it into us, just knowing directly. Just knowing directly a tree. Trees lend themselves to that somehow. An animal in the forest. A tiny little spider walking right there. Realizing the possibility of crushing it by not noticing it. And, and certainly discovering that we are in harmony with it. This openness to nature, it, it really defies description. We can pile up words, we can say, as I say, a sense of oneness. But it's uh, totally beyond words. It's an experience. And, and such experiences of, can also be had, of course, in all kinds of social situations. They are, they are more difficult, it's true. They, are, they are easily get contaminated by eye-making from our side, eye-making from the side of the other person, surely. Just a, a little incident that I remember from a couple of weeks ago. I was in the Upper West Side and I was having lunch in a diner there. And um, I noticed a waitress spoke Spanish. 
So I addressed her in Spanish, and she immediately said to me, Mi amor, my love. And it went to my head so fast, you know, wherever it goes to, so fast, you know. <laughs> and then in the next uh, few seconds, it dawned on me that that's the way all shopkeepers in Central, Central America address their customers. <laughs> but what was, but what's interesting, you see, was my, bon my liability to that thing. And, and of course, I laughed at myself and it was very freeing. It was very freeing, you see, to see that it was just a, 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 a knee-jerk reaction from the mind, that's all. Didn't have to invest myself either way on it. So, you know, the mind can clench around things, of course. But we are not the victim of that clenching mind. It may disturb us for a moment, sure. You know. It took me a few seconds, could might have taken me taken me weeks, but <laughs> <laughs> So, the same kind of transparency and openness is available. The same tr openness and transparency that's available with nature is available in, in all kinds of social situations. We have to be alert, so not get caught. In fact, social situations are the fertile ground for openness, at the, at the risk of putting in words something that cannot be put in words, let me just quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was having an interview on TV just a, a week or so ago, or maybe two weeks. He said, uh, you know, uh, Desmond Tutu comes from South Africa, you may know. He's a Nobel Prize winner and so on. By the way, he says, oh, you know why I got the Nobel Prize? Because my name is so easy to pronounce. <laughs> so, uh, all these other people were very, very, very good peacemakers, too, in South Africa, but nobody could <laughs> pronounce the name. And he says, in the part of the world I come from, there's this little word, word, Ubuntu. And Ubuntu, he says, means to be a person, you need another person. So, let us, let Ubuntu blossom in any social situation we find ourselves in. The recognition that the other person is also who we are. Hard at times, I fully agree. So, just uh, 
the last uh, situation I want to review is uh, a political situation. And, and I bring it up just to illustrate that even there, even there, it is possible to open up to, an, to a space that's not contaminated by I and we <laughs> making. Difficult, but not impossible. Of course, in politics, we find ourselves often at the in, in, in the in the midst of great tensions, whether at the receiving end of, say, police repression, police action, or ourselves acting in one way or another, or sometimes both. Now, this is primarily the theme for tomorrow's talk, but let me just an anticipate a few things. In, in connection, of course, not just with the result of the current election, but you know, not forgetting that this country administration has taken again a sharp turn to the right and situations where, as you may be aware, even Colin Powell is a liberal. Can we, in spite of all of that, you know, I, I dramatize this, and I say, can we anyway be, as the Buddha says, directly knowing where the political process is? directly know the outcome of this process, not conceiving ourselves in the process, apart from the process, not conceiving the proce process to be mine or an affront to me, not delighting, not commiserating, not trying to grasp not trying to push away. Having understood the, the wisdom of not fabricating anything around it, and yet being totally serious about doing whatever needs to be done it's appropriate for us to do. As I said, that's uh, basically the topic of tomorrow's talk. And uh, I know this talk, and the three talks are kind of repetitious, but there are some things that I, I find uh, important to, for me to say repeatedly, so I hear myself, and for you to hear them again. So what I've been trying to do is to offer a taste of 
that space of freedom that's available to us. A space that's free, not preempted by the habitual constructions of mind. Constructions centered in the fabrication of identity individually and collectively. Because this space is largely beyond words, it's, it's an experience. It's, it's hard to talk about it, surely. It's even, even arduous to name it. I've, uh, I've struggled how to name it, you know. I talk about a space of freedom. I talk about the depth of being. Whatever, I could use uh, uh, the whole vocabulary of Buddhism. The Buddha himself very clearly had difficulty naming the spaces that he called emptiness, nirvana, and so on. And that's why he didn't settle on just one word. He kept changing the word so nobody believed that that word had the key. Because it's all basically experience, not words in the vocabulary that we have anyway. We'd have to have a different language for that. The meaning of this space is largely defined by what's not there, by its emptiness. It reminds me of a beautiful sutra of the Buddha, where he is talking about the, the place where we are, and he defines it by what's not there. That's an example of how to define this type of space. What does matter is that perhaps I've been able to persuade you to dip your toe into the pool, to just taste the waters of this space. And yes, of course, eventually, take the plunge when you're ready. To go into the waters to go where there's no reference point, no condition for freedom, for freedom is unconditional. And the world opens up to us magically, unconditionally. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.